You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected works of Rudolf Steiner, number 218, entitled Spirit as Sculptor of the Human Organism, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 10, given in London on the 17th of November, 1922, and it is footnoted as a first semi-public lecture. End of footnote. There is no doubt that many people today keenly desire to know something of spiritual, of supersensible worlds, and in recent times even scientists or people in the academic world have been seeking ways of gaining insight into these worlds. Yet they are always hindered in such efforts by the nature of authoritative evaluation and judgment implicit in modern science. In seeking to draw knowledge of the supersensible world from one source or another, they come to the conclusion that exact knowledge, as they are used to developing in science, cannot exist in relation to supersensible worlds, for there is nothing to base it on, no solid ground. By contrast, anthroposophic spiritual science, which I will speak about today and over the next few days, seeks a really precise knowledge of the supersensible world. It is not an, in quotes, exact science, in the same sense as recognized by scientific inquiry into the physical world based on experimentation. Instead, it requires the development of inner capacities of the psyche, which slumber in us ordinarily, both in daily life and in mainstream science. These capacities are developed so that the acuity of human awareness is maintained in a way that only otherwise occurs in the exact sciences. There the ordinary consciousness one has is retained while applying exact methods to inquiry into the surrounding world. In anthroposophic spiritual science we embrace what I would call an intellectual modesty saying something along the following lines, quote, I was once a child and had capacities that were nowhere near as sharp as those I possess now as an adult, and which I acquired through education and life experience. In the same way as I developed certain abilities from childhood on, so there may also now exist capacities still slumbering in me that I can draw on through certain methods. In the anthroposophic spiritual science I am speaking of here, such capacities must be drawn forth from the soul in the following way. Before gaining deeper knowledge, we apply the methods first to our own development, or in other words, we cultivate this inner development in a careful, precise way. We prepare ourselves to see into a higher world, by basing this preparation, applied to ourselves, 
on an exact method. By such means, as I described in my previous lectures here in this hall, we can arrive at exact clairvoyance, acquired in a precise, methodical way, in the same way that scientists inquire into the natural world by using precise methodologies. I will not go into much detail today about how one acquires this exact clairvoyance, since I have spoken of these methods in the lectures I referred to, and you can find out more about them in the book translated into English as titled The Way of Initiation. Instead, I first want to draw your attention today to factors that ordinarily hinder people from penetrating higher worlds. This is primarily due to our capacity to perceive the world only at each present moment. Our eyes see only the present moment, the world and its phenomena as they appear to us now. Our ears can only hear tones in the present moment, and the same is true of our other senses. The past that we have experienced is something available to us only as memory, thus in thoughts whose immediacy has faded. We can sense this fully if we think how vivid and real were the experiences we had ten years ago, whereas the thoughts we have of those experiences now are pale and shadowy by comparison. Anything reaching back before the present moment lives in us only as shadowy memory in our ordinary awareness. And yet this shadowy memory can be kindled into higher life and flare up brightly. And this is achieved through methods which, as I said, I will not give a full account of today. Methods of thought meditation, concentration, self-development, and so forth. Someone who applies such methods to himself learns to live in thoughts as intensely as one otherwise only lives in outward sense impressions, and by doing so he acquires a certain capacity. He is no longer confined to observing the world in the present moment only. But such exercises, which allow us to observe the world above and beyond the present moment, must, depending on each person's disposition and innate possibilities, be practiced for a long time in a careful, systematic way, thus in exact meditation and concentration. Some people, especially in our present times, are already born with the capacities of perception developed in this way. Such abilities are not immediately apparent, but they emerge from within at a certain point in the person's life, and it is clear that they could not have arisen in this way if they had not, if they had not been an innate endowment. I am speaking of the capacity to live in thoughts in the same way that one otherwise lives in the world of senses through one's body. Such a statement should not be taken too lightly. It is worth reflecting that we owe to our experience of the sensory world everything that gives us the sense that we exist. But we can come to experience a second existence when we eventually reach the point of no longer relying on the impressions of our eyes, ears, and other senses, instead developing an inner life that is as inwardly intense as the life of the senses, 
an inner life that lives not only in shadowy thoughts, but in inwardly vivid thoughts. We then experience our thoughts as we otherwise only experience our sense impressions. And this gives rise in us to a second existence, a different awareness of self. We then experience what I would call an awakening, not outside our body, but within us, where we awaken to a life despite our physical body being as tranquil and unreceptive to sense impressions as it otherwise only is during sleep. If we examine ourselves, we discover that in ordinary life we really only know what we have absorbed through the senses. Direct perceptions do not tell us anything about our own inner life. Ordinary consciousness does not enable us to perceive our inner organism. When we acquire a self-awareness in pure thinking, however, we learn to look inward with as much clarity as we can otherwise only look outward. And then we feel something like the following. In looking outward at the world, the sun or some kind of light must be there to cast its rays on external objects. And this light outside us enables us to see these objects. But when we come to awareness in this second kind of existence, in a process of pure thinking, a process of vision, in fact, that is as colorful and intense as our sensory impressions only are otherwise, then we feel a kind of inner light. No, not a kind of light, but a real one, through the ex- though the experience is spiritual, which we can shine into our own interior in the same way that objects are illumined outside us by external light. It is for this reason that we can call this state of human experience clairvoyance. In awakened self-awareness in the spirit, this clairvoyance initially endows us with the capacity to be fully present again within any moment that we have previously experienced on earth. It is perfectly possible, then, to experience oneself again at the age of 18, not just to remember one's experience, but to re-experience it more or less strongly. We are again the person we were at that age, at 18, 15, or 10. Thus, we can transport ourselves back to any point in our life, gaining inwardly illumined vision of what, by contrast to the spatial body containing our senses and endowing us with outward perception, we can call a temporal body. But this temporal body is present all at once. We do not experience it in successive moments, but in its inner mobility. We survey our whole previous life, otherwise recalled only in shadowy memories. And yet we illumine this whole life of ours in a way that allows us to stand within any and every moment of it. In experiencing this inner illumination, we realize that we bear not only a physical body, this spatial body, but also a second, finer body, one really woven from images of our life hitherto. Yet at the same time, these images or pictures themselves creatively shape and configure this life of ours on earth. 
That is, they shape our organism and our activity, the organism in which we exist and the actions we have performed. In other words, we become aware of a second human being within us. And just as the physical spatial body is experienced within a physical world, so we perceive this second human being, in fact, in a finer etheric world, a world which I would call light imbued. The whole world is there a second time in finer configurations. Finer etheric configurations underlie all physical existence, and now one can perceive these. Now the remarkable thing here is that everything one experiences in this finer body can only be retained for a short while. It is usually the case that someone acquiring this exact clairvoyance and thus illumining his etheric body or body of formative forces, as I also call it, perceives that the etheric world, his etheric self, are impressions that fade very quickly indeed. One cannot hold them. And this gives one a kind of anxiety, a desire to return as quickly as possible to physical perceptions, in order to live once more in one's sense of inner stability as a human being, as an individual. In perceiving the etheric body, we experience ourselves there and also the things of the higher world, all that is etheric in nature in the higher world. But at the same time, We perceive how fleeting all these impressions are, how hard it is to keep a hold of them. In fact, we can only hold fast to them by seeking a particular kind of help. Let me give you an example of the kind of help I myself use to prevent the impressions of this etheric vision from fading too quickly. Each time such impressions are present, I try not only to see them, but to record them in writing. In this way, the activity practiced here is not only performed by the abstract powers of the soul, but is also retained by writing. There is no need to read what one has written afterward. The important thing is to allow a stronger activity to flow into one that is initially otherwise only a purely etheric activity. In this way, one, in quotes, pours what is extremely fleeting and fluid and rapidly dissipates into one's ordinary human capacities. All this does not occur unconsciously, as it does for a medium, but with full awareness. One pours this all into one's ordinary human corporeal capacities and by this means can retain it. And by this means, too, we become able to see how to hold fast a supersensible world altogether, an etheric one initially, though later we will speak of other supersensible worlds, to hold fast a supersensible etheric world which encompasses the life we have lived so far, and also the etheric realm of nature around us, right up to the world of the stars. We become acquainted with this etheric world. We experience ourselves within this etheric world, and we know that it is impossible to hold fast to this world for more than three days without coming into touch with the physical body again. Having developed these capacities to a very great degree, it is possible to hold fast to this world for two or three days, for two, two, three days. As a modern initiate, 
one can survey all this by the means I will describe in a moment, and can also evaluate the nature of what is present there, of what, without relying on corporeal capacities, one holds fast in one's etheric body or body of formative forces. This is what we initially perceive from our higher self-awareness. When we pass through the portal of death and depart from the physical body, which falls away and is laid aside, and what, for this reason, cannot be retained in our awareness for more than two to three days after the death of the physical body. Thus, through the forming of exact clairvoyance, we can experience the initial conditions occurring after death. We experience this as a prefiguring knowledge. The prefiguring knowledge experienced by the initiate occurs for all when they lay aside their physical body. I will explain later what allows continuing awareness after death, without which a person would have no awareness for the whole time, the two to three days, during which he can retain, we can retain our ether body or body of formative forces through higher knowledge. For two to three days after death, the human being has an awareness of the etheric world that lives in his etheric body. Then he lays aside this awareness. He experiences how the etheric body falls away from him, in a sense, just as the physical body first fell away. And now he finds it necessary to pass over into a different form of awareness, so that he can continue to live after death as a conscious human soul. It is possible to describe these first moments after death, they are just moments in terms of universal existence, if one has acquired the capacity I have described to you of vision of the higher world, since then one can prefigure what otherwise normally occurs to everyone at death. By acquiring this strong sense of self-awareness not dependent on the body, one already experiences these moments directly after death. One succeeds in illumining one's own higher life and perceiving in oneself the light that reveals in the first two to three days after death a world around one that is different from the world we have around us when we look at our surroundings by means of our senses during our life on earth. Once this part of the lecture has been translated, I will describe what happens after these two or three days. To survey the supersensible aspect of our earthly life, whose character, as I have said, lives on a few days after death, one requires the inner illumination I have described. One has to kindle spiritual light in oneself, a light that shines inward. Then we can get beyond merely perceiving things in the present moment as the senses allow us to. To arrive at further knowledge in the supersensible world, we not only have to change our capacities of perception, but also the conditions in which we live. In ordinary life our condition is one enclosed within our physical, spatial body. The boundaries of our skin are at the same time the boundaries of our life. Our life extends only as far as these bodily limits. Within this condition of experience, 
we cannot get beyond the forms of higher knowledge I have so far described. We can only come to knowledge of higher worlds, reaching beyond ordinary experience, by acquiring a form of experience that is not enclosed within confines of the spatial body, but which encompasses the whole world that otherwise surrounds us. This experience can be acquired, too, as part of our knowledge of higher worlds. As I have said, I wish only to refer to a few aspects of methods the modern initiate uses to obtain exact insights into higher worlds. The rest can be found in the book I have mentioned. As well as acquiring the ability to have a second existence in our life of thinking, still enclosed in the spatial body, we can also develop the capacity to live outside our body. We do the former at a first stage by allowing thoughts to live intensively and vividly in our awareness. Then, using systematic exercises, we proceed to rid our mind of these thoughts again at will, and thereby to acquire this condition of experience outside the body. Let me give you a simple example of such an exercise. Imagine you're observing a crystal that stands before you and your eyes perceive it. Someone who wishes only to work in a mediumistic way or seeks a trance-like condition will stare at this crystal so that the impression it makes on him transports him into an unreflecting or unconscious state. Anthroposophic spiritual science has nothing to do with this approach and instead calls on very different procedures and practices. These involve first observing the crystal, but then eventually looking away from it, abstracting as we otherwise only abstract in thought. Thus, we have a crystal before us, and we learn not only to physically perceive it, but to grasp it inwardly also. Here we no longer use our eyes, although they are fully open, to observe the crystal. We shape our soul perception in such a way that we no longer have the crystal before us, that we erase it from our sight. These exercises can also be applied to erasing a color from our outward vision so that we no longer see it, although it is before us. Thus, in particular, we can practice ridding ourselves of thoughts that surface in each given moment in response to outward life or rise up as memories from former moments of our lives. We can empty our consciousness of them, instead simply remaining awake and alert and retaining nothing, really, of the outer world in our awareness. If we do such exercises, we discover in ourselves an ability to emerge from the confines of our spatial body and to go beyond it. Then we can experience the life of our whole surroundings, rather than just observing their sensory phenomena. In this very conscious awareness, something in particular arises which I would compare with a memory of the life we have while asleep. In ordinary sensory perception, we are confined to the present moment, and our ordinary life is restricted, likewise, 
to the condition of our waking life. If you recall your life so far, the times you were asleep are always void of ordinary awareness. What your soul repeatedly experienced between falling asleep and waking up again does not figure in your memory. In other words, our memories are an interrupted stream, although we often overlook this. Let me read that again. In other words, our memories are an interrupted stream, although we often overlook this. But the mind, awoken in such a way that a person can live with it outside his body, has before it an intense memory of what the soul experiences during sleep. This is the second stage of knowledge of supersensible worlds. And initially we can perceive here what we undergo as soul when our body, our physical body, rests without sensory perception or expression of will in sleep, as if soulless. By this means, during our ordinary waking life, we can, in a certain way, remember what we experienced outside the body each time we fell asleep. But we also have to realize that we must properly judge what arises in this experience. What the soul experiences during sleep is, after all, an experience outside the body. And we can only perceive it if we can develop an awareness, a condition of life, outside the body. Here we do not now come to know something that is illumined by an inner light, like our own time body, as I describe this, but in our waking remembrance, which has elevated itself to this exact higher clairvoyance, we learn to perceive what we really experience each time we are asleep. Initially, though, this experience is of a different order from what we are used to. In the ordinary awareness of waking life, We live in our physical body and have within us lungs, heart, and so on. While we are asleep, instead, we do not possess a personal human consciousness, but a cosmic one. However paradoxical this sounds, clairvoyant vision perceives that we possess a consciousness in which live something like replicas of the worlds of planets and stars. We feel ourselves to be immersed in the universal life of the cosmos. Our perspective on the world is from the cosmos and its universal life. Each time we fall asleep, we experience within us, in reverse, what we underwent in physical life during the last period of our waking life, back to the moment we last woke up. Thus, After spending a day awake in the regular way and then falling asleep at night, the last experiences we had before falling asleep in the late evening come first in our sleeping life. And then we go back through the day's events to those in the afternoon and so on. We go back over all the day's events in reverse through the night. As I said, in exact clairvoyance, as I have described it here, we can recall these nightly experiences in our ordinary waking life. Just as in our ordinary memory we recall things we experienced in waking life years ago, exact clairvoyance enables us to witness this reverse experience of daily life. 
It therefore offers us something like an expanded memory. We look back upon our sleeping experience, knowing that in sleep our experience is outside the physical spatial body, and that here we experience our daily life in reverse, within a real world essence, which in a sense possesses awareness of the whole world as image, as replica. And then we also find that this reverse experience of daily existence does not take as much time as it needs here in the physical world. Developing developing real research into this realm, increasingly bringing exact systematic experience to bear on it, one learns to perceive that this reverse experience happens three times faster than physical experience in ordinary consciousness. In other words, someone who is awake for around two-thirds of his life and asleep for one-third re-experiences in this one-third what he underwent in physical life in the remaining two-thirds. Thus we can come to perceive a life that happens outside the body which runs backward and three times faster. As we recall this nighttime sleeping experience through exact clairvoyance in ordinary daily life, we find at the same time that this reverse experience has no intrinsic importance. What exact clairvoyance gives us in our waking life is of course a memory whose significance is not intrinsic but only preliminary. How do you evaluate the memory of an experience you had twenty years ago? You find it to be an experience in shadowy thoughts. And yet the very nature of this memory offers a guarantee that I do not live in fantasy, but that this is an image of what I actually experienced in my life in the past. Just as a memory embodies an assurance that it relates to something quite different, a reality that once occurred, so the recall of our nightly experiences of no intrinsic importance in itself bears an assurance of the future. It points toward the future. We have no need to prove to ourselves that memory points back to the past, nor, having acquired exact clairvoyance, do we need to prove that our survey thus gained of nightly experiences is not just a present fantasy. We can tell by its very nature that it relates to our future, one in fact, when we have in reality laid aside our physical body at death, whereas now in exact clairvoyance we have simply laid it aside metaphorically. Thereby we learn to perceive what we experience following death after completing the period of three days as I described it. Indeed, through this memory-like process, we also come to understand the significance of the two to three days after death, during which we feel ourselves to be within world consciousness, cosmic consciousness, surveying one last time our own etheric nature from the perspective of the cosmos. Here we look back upon what we experienced during our life on earth. We learn to perceive what we experience subsequently, a life following the event of death, which unfolds three times faster than life on earth. 
This is something we learn to perceive through our clairvoyant vision of nighttime experience. And so we find that the etheric vision, lasting only a short time after death, is followed by a life that lasts twenty, thirty years or shorter, depending on how old we were when we died. These spans are approximate, but this life takes roughly three times less than our life on earth did. If someone died at the age of thirty, therefore, this part of life after death will take around ten years. Or if he died at sixty, this reverse experience will take roughly twenty years. Through exact clairvoyance we can perceive all this, just as memory recalls a past experience or action. We learn to see that supersensible experience follows our death, an experience in the supersensible world which revisits our whole life on earth in reverse. Every night we re-experience the day that has ended. After death, we re-experience in reverse our whole life on earth. We pass through it all once more. And in passing in spiritual form through everything we experienced on earth, we acquire an accurate evaluation of our own moral worth. During this period we pass through after death, we incorporate into ourselves, you can say, an awareness of our moral personality, our moral value, in the same way that here on earth we acquire an awareness of life in flesh and blood. After death we dwell within what we were as a moral human being on earth. Passing through all the events of our life again in reverse, and therefore no longer held back from moral judgment of ourselves by our instincts, drives, and passions, but instead surveying them from a purely spiritual perspective, we come to an accurate, true judgment of our own moral quality. The period I have described is needed to form this judgment. Having completed this after-death period, this inner moral life fades along with our reverse recall of our moral qualities on earth, and then we must journey onward through worlds of spirit with a different kind of awareness, which can likewise become known to us through exact clairvoyance. For this we need to learn not only to live outside our spatial body, but also in a quite different consciousness from the one we possess here within the physical world. We discover that the experience of our moral quality, taking a third of the time of our past earthly life, is followed by supersensible spiritual experience. A life in pure spirit follows. To discern its nature, exact clairvoyance has to rise from ordinary consciousness to a pure and higher consciousness and develop the ability to fully evaluate this higher consciousness. Thus I have attempted to describe to you two of the states that follow death. Once this part of the lecture has been translated, I will continue by describing the nature of the third condition. If you consider what I have described as our reverse experience during sleep, you will see that while this is a life outside the physical spatial body, 
or alongside it, if you like, its nature is nevertheless such that we cannot move within it freely. Basically, we have to carry out what we accomplished during the day in our ordinary awareness, albeit in the reverse direction. And likewise, someone who draws on exact clairvoyance to obtain supersensible insight into these experiences I have described feels that the world he recalls in his waking consciousness through clairvoyance is one that holds him fast, one in which he cannot freely move, that harnesses and chains him. In contrast to this, the third condition of higher knowledge and higher life, which we must seek, is to move freely in the world of spirit. Without this, we cannot develop purely spiritual, purely supersensible consciousness. In addition to exact clairvoyance, one also has to acquire what I will call, quote, ideal magic, close quote, which must be distinguished from the charlatanism of much unreal, externally performed magic. By ideal magic, I mean the following. Ordinarily, when someone surveys his life, he discovers how, in a certain respect, he has grown different with every passing year and decade. His habits have gradually altered. He has acquired certain skills while others have declined. Anyone who scrutinizes himself honestly to evaluate the skills he possesses will always see that he has changed during his life. But this is something life itself has made of us. We have given ourselves fully to life, and life schools and educates us, shapes and configures our soul. By contrast, someone who wishes to enter the supersensible world and perceive its nature, or whoever, in other words, wishes to develop ideal magic, must not only inwardly intensify his thoughts to recognize in himself a second existence, as I have described, but must also emancipate his will from its servitude in the physical body. In ordinary life, we can only bring our will into action and movement by making use of our physical body, say our legs, arms, or organs of speech. The physical body is the basis of our will life. However, we can do the following, and this is something that a person must very systematically undertake as spiritual researcher if he wishes to develop this ideal magic, this augmenting his capacity excuse me, thus augmenting his capacity of exact clairvoyance. For example, he must develop a will so strong that he can say at a certain point in life that he will rid himself of a particular habit and instead inwardly appropriate a different one. It may sometimes take years to apply sufficient energy of will to transform oneself so entirely as to acquire certain forms of experience but it can be done. Instead of just letting life teach us through the physical body, we can take this education, this self-discipline, in hand ourselves. The kinds of energetic will exercise, which I have likewise described in the volumes I mentioned, will enable someone who desires to become a modern initiate 
to do more than re-experience in sleep what happened to him during the day. He will succeed in bringing about states that are not sleep, which are experienced in full awareness, but nevertheless allow him to be mobile as he sleeps, to do something, so that he is not just passive when outside his body, as is the case with ordinary awareness, is not merely passive in the world of spirit, but able to act there, be active. Ordinarily, human beings do not make further progress while they are asleep. But someone who becomes a modern initiate in this sense has the ability to be active, to act, to engage in the life experienced between falling asleep and waking up again. And when, in this way, we carry the will into our human nature in the condition where our being is outside the body, then we become able to develop a quite different kind of awareness in us, one that can now really perceive what we experience during the time after death that follows the one I described. By means of this different kind of awareness, we really do become able to see into our life after death as well as our life before birth. Footnote, translator's note, Steiner writes here literally, Quote, our post-earthly earth life, close quote, and our, quote, pre-earthly earth life, close quote, end of footnote. We become able to see how we pass through a life that unfolds in a world of spirit in the same way that physical life on earth unfolds in a physical world. We learn to recognize ourselves as pure spirit in a world of spirit, Just as here in physical earth conditions, we recognize ourselves as a physical body within the physical world. And now we find that we have the opportunity to form a view of how long this life lasts, after the period of moral self-evaluation that I described before. By carrying the will into one's life of soul, through ideal magic in this way, we become acquainted with the form of awareness that we have as adults and can properly compare it with the dull consciousness we possessed in infancy. As you know, ordinary awareness cannot recall the very early years of childhood when we live in a dull consciousness, finding our way into the world in a kind of somnolence. Compared to this dark, dull consciousness of early childhood, our ordinary awareness as adults is bright and vivid Someone who develops the capacity for ideal magic, as I have described it, will come to recognize the difference between his ordinary waking consciousness as an adult and this dull consciousness of infancy. In a sense, he learns to see that he develops to a different level, from the infant's duller form of awareness to a brighter form of adult consciousness. And arising from the distinction he knows exists between child consciousness, which is like dream consciousness, and his adult consciousness, he becomes able also to judge the other relationship between his adult consciousness and the illumined consciousness into which he has carried not only exact clairvoyance, but also ideal magic, so that he can now move freely within the world of spirit. In early infancy, we did not have control of our movements. In the world of spirit, we learned to move freely, 
just as from early childhood onward we learned to move our body freely during physical life on earth. In other words, we come to perceive the relationship firstly between child and adult consciousness, but then also, similarly, that other relationship between adult consciousness and the highest purely spiritual consciousness. By this means, too, we come to know not only our life after death as a spirit among spirits with whom we work and collaborate, but we also acquire a judgment of how long this spiritual life amongst spiritual beings lasts. Here again I would cite the example of remembering an ordinary event. Just as a memory of this kind bears a past reality within it, so what now, what one now experiences bears within it a correct judgment, a perception that in the higher consciousness of the initiate lives something that has more than personal significance, pointing rather to the reality of a life as spirit among spirits after death. And we learn to see how this purely spiritual life relates to life on earth as we pass through it between birth and death. If as an initiate we look back to our earliest infancy, we find that it becomes ever easier to look into the world of spirit as we grow older, It is true that there are relatively young people who can do so, but with every passing year this spiritual perception becomes clearer and more exact. We increasingly acquire the ability to pass over into this other form of consciousness, learning at the same time how the one relates to the other. We come to perceive the following. At the age of forty, let us say, one only possesses the ability to look back in memory to the age of three or four. We consider how many more years our forty are compared to the three or four of the infant with his unconscious, dreamlike awareness. We come to see, likewise, that our life in the spirit after death will last longer than this earthly life in the same ratio that exists between this whole life on earth and our dreamy infancy. In other words, it will last for many centuries. Therefore, once we have passed through the period of moral self-evaluation, we enter a purely spiritual life as spirit amongst spirits, and this lasts centuries. In this experience, we engage with tasks in the world of spirit in the same way that we engage with tasks in the physical world during our earthly life. But these tasks, as perceived by the exact clairvoyance I described, supported by our free movement through the world of spirit as achieved in ideal magic, are distinguished by the fact that we elaborate from the intrinsic nature of the world of spirit in which we live after death all the powers that subsequently lead us back again to another life on earth. This new life on earth stands before us as a goal from the beginning of our life after death. And this life on earth within us is indeed a real microcosm. This microcosm is elaborated out of a mighty experience in the world of spirit after death. In the physical world, a seed or embryo is first small and gradually unfolds to become a large plant or animal. I would also speak of a spirit germ or seed which we develop after our physical life on earth has ended. 
We work together with spiritual beings to form a spirit germ for our subsequent life on earth, developing this out of the spiritual powers of the world. This work of elaboration is not a mere repetition of earthly life, but encompasses modes of activity, intrinsic essences that are greater and mightier, of course, than anything that can be experienced on earth. After our earthly existence, therefore, we prepare our future life on earth as we dwell in experiences of the world of spirit. And in addition to this, a cosmic consciousness arises, as I have described. The fact that cosmic consciousness arises in one person and likewise in another, and that indeed this cosmic consciousness is already present every night, albeit in a dull state, so that it has no real consciousness, but if I may use a paradoxical expression, an unconscious consciousness, means that people live as spiritual beings, not just with other spiritual beings who never descend to earth, dwelling in a pure world of spirit, but also with all the souls who I who are either embodied in physical human bodies or who have already passed through the gate of death and dwell in the same condition as they do, a cosmic consciousness that all have in common. It really is true to say that the threads woven here from one soul to another in families, among people who find each other by encountering one another in physical bodies, but also, therefore, finding one another as souls, are laid aside. Everything we found here on earth is cast off. What we experience through love, as friends, in connections with those close to us, what we experience through physical encounters in a physical body is all laid aside, cast off in the same way that we lay these physical bodies aside. But having developed family relationships, friendships, love, this is spiritually transplanted through the gate of death into those experiences in the spirit that work to develop the subsequent life. And here we do not just work for ourselves alone, but already also in the period of moral evaluation of our past life, together with human souls whom we have come to prize and love in the world. Through exact clairvoyance and ideal magic, all this goes beyond mere faith to become real knowledge informing a person's direct capacities of vision. We can even say that there is a gulf here between souls in the physical world, however much they love one another, since they encounter each other within their corporeality, and can only enter into reciprocal relationships mediated by the physical body. But, when we live in the world of spirit, it is no longer even the case that the physical body of a beloved person still on earth is a hindrance to our community of soul with them. To look into the spiritual world, we have to acquire the ability to look through earthly objects, as I have described. And in the same way, someone who has passed through the gate of death has community with the souls on earth he is close to by virtue of perception that looks through the body. As long as they are still on earth, until they themselves die, he still experiences them as souls. Today, at the outset of these three lectures, 
I wanted to raise these things by way of offering insights into the reality of our supersensible life. I wanted to show that efforts to develop exact clairvoyance and ideal magic enable one to speak about higher worlds in the same precise and scientific way as natural science speaks about the world of the senses. Increasingly, there will be people who develop their capacities to orient themselves in these worlds. And it will become apparent that no science, however perfect, can object to knowledge obtained through exact clairvoyance and ideal magic, and offered in an authentic spirit of scientific inquiry, about what we undergo not just here between birth and death, but also between death and a new birth. Tomorrow I will speak further about these repeated lives on earth and about what ultimate end they may reach. I will also describe the Christ event, the event of Golgotha, and what effect it had upon human life on earth. In doing so, I will need to show that the kinds of knowledge I have described, inasmuch as they concern each individual, can illumine the whole evolution of the human race during life on earth and thus also illumine what the entry of Christ into earthly life signifies for humanity. These lectures, therefore, aim to show firstly that there is no need to fly in the face of the exact sciences of modern times when one speaks of supersensible insights. This will be the subject of tomorrow's lecture, that the event of the very greatest importance for humanity, the Christ event, appears before us in a new form, a more luminous form, when the human soul is willing to accept the insights presented here into the supersensible world. At the same time, I will also show how anthroposophic spiritual science relates to Christianity. The end of Lecture 10